the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University. Welcome to Democracy Works. I'm Jenna Spinelli, and I am very excited today to be joined by Justin Kempf, uh, host and creator of the Democracy Paradox podcast. Thank you for sharing one of your episodes with us. I know some of our listeners probably already listened to Democracy Paradox, but I hope that uh, for those who don't, this episode will be enticing enough for them to do so. So why don't you tell us what, what we have on top here? Sure. This is a conversation that I had with Rodrigo Berenicea, and he recently wrote an article along with Alberto Vergara called Peru, The Danger of Powerless Democracy. And what really drew me to this article and to really reach out to Rodrigo is that it's both a fascinating just situation of what's happened in Peru that I really think that people should know more about. But secondly, it just raises some really difficult questions about what exactly it means for democracy. And so Rodrigo talks both about the event and informs a lot of the listeners about an event that's really doesn't get enough coverage in mainstream media. Um, I mean, you'll see stories in the New York Times, you'll see stories in The Economist, but it's not headline news the way that you think it would be for how crazy and outlandish events really got. I'll admit, I did not hear, I had not heard anything about this before you sent me this episode. And and you're right, it doesn't get as much attention as what happens in, say, Turkey or Brazil or some other countries whose relationship to democracy tends to take the spotlight a little bit more. Yeah. And what I love about talking about international events is not just informing people about things around the world, but allowing us to think differently about our own democracy, whether you live in the United States or whether you live in another country. I mean, it allows you to take yourself out of your comfort zone where you might say, hey, things like that can't happen here and really just experience and think through what happens if those type of events would happen. Like, what does that mean for how I think about democracy or how I think about politics? Peru has been a case of democracy really without any political parties at all. And so it's an institutional failure in just a lot of different ways. And the country's interesting because it's had so many different presidents. It doesn't have really established political parties and they're struggling, you know, because they don't have, of all things, professional politicians, which is the thing that most people hate the most about democracy. So it, again, it just challenges what we think about democracy and what we think about politics. I don't want to steal too much thunder here, Justin, but anything else that really stood out to you or that you think our listeners should pay particular attention to as they're going through the interview? Well, again, you know, as as they're listening to it, I, I'd be drawing parallels to not necessarily the events, but things that, that you see happen in other countries and other democracies. Um, for instance, in Peru, there's a deterioration over time. It doesn't all happen all at once. There isn't widespread protest. There isn't a president who tries to create a coup uh, all at once. I mean, this is something that happens over a period of time. And again, it's something to kind of think about in terms of, you know, what parts relate to my own country, what parts uh, challenge me to think differently. And um, at the end of the day, you know, it's 
it's an interesting story. It's something that people should know about and it's something that people should really be thinking about. So um, if, uh, if you like episodes like these, I do want to plug the podcast, you know, make sure to check out democracy paradox. Uh, it's available on all the different platforms that democracy works is. And you can also check out the website, democracyparadox.com. Right. And we'll put a link in the show notes. And I know you have been doing a lot of really fascinating episodes about democracy around the world, which is something that we frankly don't cover as much on this show. So I'm grateful to you for doing that work and for sharing it with us today. So let's go now to the interview. Rodrigo Byron Echea, welcome to the Democracy Paradox. Thank you for the invitation. Well, Rodrigo, I love your article, Peru, the Danger of Powerless Democracy. I mean, it really helped explain some of the issues going on in Peru, which I followed, but I followed really from a distance. So it brought together a lot of the events, and it also helped clarify how some of the events, even dating back to 2016, really brought us to the moment where we're at. But more than that, it really helped put Peru in the context of how we think about democracy. But before we get to that point, I want to start with the main character that sets off the crisis, who is Pedro Castillo. He's a name that some people have heard of. I'm sure many people have not. Why don't we start there? Can you just tell us who is Pedro Castillo and how he won the presidency in Peru in the past election? Sure. So Pedro Castillo is an outsider, the most recent outsider in Peru's politics. He's the leader of a faction of a teachers' union, not a very prominent one, but who became the most recent electoral vehicle of the grievances in the highlands and the south in Peru. The south and the highlands in the country are the most anti-establishment and the most left from center parts of the country. And those parts of the country have been represented by different leaders, different parties, every electoral cycle. He was the one in charge of representing them electorally, let's say. And he was practically unknown, like maybe two weeks before he won the election. There was a very telling image. I think this was from uh, CNN Latin America, where they announced the runoff between Keiko Fujimori, who is well known in Peruvian politics, and Pedro Castillo, and they announced the runoff, and it was Keiko's picture next to a placeholder because they didn't have a picture of Castillo. They just didn't have him in the map. So that happened to many people in Peru too. Pedro Castillo was running with this Marxist-Leninist party, but soon it became clear that he had very tenuous ties with that party, and people learned that until not too long ago, he was actually part of a right-from-center party, Peru Posible, the party of the former president of Peru, Toledo, who's just being extradited from the U.S. And researching his background, you would see that his only experience before becoming president was losing an election, ending up fourth in a small district for mayor where there was like 2,000 voters. So this figure becomes president, someone who had no power at all before rising to the presidency, but that becomes, in name at least, the most powerful person in the country. Of course, without any contact with the levers of power, no experience, his presidency was very chaotic. 
soon was involved in turmoil about corruption, ineptitude, and facing a very radicalized opposition. And eventually he launches this absurd coup d'etat without the support of the military, without the support of any de facto power that would allow him to, to do such a thing. And he was removed from power by Congress. And this is a very good representation of what power is like right now in Peru. So at one moment, you had Pedro Castillo announcing a coup d'etat for which he had no power to do. And then two hours later, he was in prison. So from top to bottom in a matter of hours, literally, that is what's happening in Peru. Political power is far from being concentrated, is far from being in the hands of a handful of people or parties or an oligarchy. It's diluted and it's making democracy ungovernable. So I remember when he was in the runoff with Kiko Fujimari. And obviously I'm in the United States. I'm looking at all of this from a distance. I'm reading a few articles from The Economist and The New York Times, so I'm not an expert. But I knew who Kiko Fujimari is, and I wanted her to lose because I felt that she was the undemocratic candidate in the election. Did Castillo give any indications of undemocratic sentiment during the election as well? I mean, uh, yes, it was a topic of conversation in Peru among some people that, you know, we had a runoff between two candidates that were showing authoritarian or illiberal impulses. One of them was Keiko and the other one was Castillo. And kind of the election for some was like, do I choose the one that has the best chances to actually realize authoritarian plans or the one that has the least chances of realizing them? And for many people, the choice was framed in those terms. Castillo had a populist kind of rhetoric. Let's say he used the usual liberal language that populists use when referring to their rivals, when referring to democratic institutions. He was constantly making reference to checks and balances during the election, saying, you know, this institution, I'm going to get rid of it, or I'm going to close it, I'm going to close Congress, stuff like that. Let's say pushing the right buttons to use the sentiment of anger towards the establishment and towards failing political institutions, something that it's normal in a country like Peru. It's something that happens every five years. So that plus the fact that, you know, he was running with this far left party that was not hiding its affection for figures like Hugo Chavez or the Cuban dictatorship. It made really clear that it was not a democratic candidate, at least in the liberal terms. But again, he was running with this other illiberal candidate. And for those who cared about democracy, this was an awful choice. Many are going to have a hard time understanding this. But once it got to the runoff, many felt that Pedro Castillo had already won because he was running against Kiko Fujimori, which, to be fair, she really could have won. I mean, it was an incredibly close runoff election. But she has lost now in three consecutive close elections. Can you tell us a little bit about her, why it is that she continues to be almost just guaranteed a place in the runoff election, yet still can't cross the finish line and actually win the presidency? Okay, so Keiko, she's the heir of Alberto Fujimori. Alberto Fujimori was our last successful populist leader in the country. 
He was a right-wing populist leader. He became a dictator between 92 and 95. He launched a coup d'etat, self-coup, the script of which actually Castillo followed almost exactly in terms of, you know, the wording. Then he called for new elections. And from 95 on, it's considered a competitive authoritarian regime. He was as authoritarian as he was popular, as it happens usually with a competitive authoritarian regimes. Eventually, his administration fell apart due to internal contradictions and external pressures and so on. But Fujimori remained popular and Keiko became the successor and the way for voters to channel that desire of supporting Fujimori moving forward in the future. And um, Keiko, however, because of the nature of her dad's administration, that combined a neoliberal program in the economic realm and an authoritarian regime in the political realm brought together a large coalition of people who were, on the one hand, left from center in the economic realm, but also people who were liberal and that appreciated democracy or at least rejected authoritarianism, which sometimes is not the same, and of course, who rejected the taint of corruption. His administration was famously corrupt. So that coalition of left-from-center people, people who rejected corruption, people who appreciated liberalism and rejected authoritarianism, that broad coalition was under the broad umbrella of anti-Fujimorismo. So in every election, when Keiko made it to the runoff, the anti-Fujimorista coalition would revive liberals that were not supporting the left in the first round will join the left in the second round to defeat Keiko and vice versa. Like sometimes the leftists would join a right-wing liberal to defeat Keiko. So for example, liberals joined Umala when he was running against Keiko in 2011 and leftists joined a right-wing liberal in 2016, when he was running against Keiko. So that coalition is the one that has stopped Keiko from making it to power. But it was always really close. It was like tens of thousands of votes. So chance also played a role. Yeah, she seems to be very genuinely popular, although not popular enough to actually gain a majority coalition. And a big reason for that is many perceive her as a genuine danger to democracy, just like her father. Do you think that she is a genuine danger to democracy, especially after watching what we just saw with Pedro Castillo, who turned out to be a danger to democracy as well? Yeah, I think uh, Keiko, at some point, she was trying to liberalize her position, liberalize the party. She was trying to remove the old Fujimoristas from the party. But eventually, I think she understood that no matter what she would do, she would always be framed as, you know, Fujimori's heir. So she just embraced it. And she said, you know, she wanted to bring Demodura, a democracy with a strong hand or something like that, making a reference to her father's authoritarianism. And uh, what I think makes the difference or made the difference with Castillo was that Power is very fragile in Peru, but de facto power is not as fragile. It is fragile in comparative terms, but 
de facto power is not as volatile as electoral power or political power. And Keiko Fujimori could appeal to forces like the military or business organizations, news media, and let's say amass a kind of support or bring together a kind of coalition that had an easier time bringing together an authoritarian regime. And I think Castillo's experience actually ended up validating those suspicions. Why? Yes, Castillo was an illiberal candidate from the beginning. He had no profound uh, democratic instincts. But the minute he tried to launch a dictatorship, he failed miserably. But then her successor, Boluarte, who was his vice president, but she's ruling with the tacit and sometimes not so tacit support of a right-wing coalition, she got away with lots and lots of repression. And that's when Peru made it to the headlines internationally. More than 60 people dead in this year's episodes of violence and repression. And the kind of validation that that repression has received and the kind of passes that she has gotten from the media and the, the willingness by the military to repress and so on, that is not something that someone like Castillo could have done. Those actors would have been in the anti-authoritarian coalition, whereas with Keiko, those actors probably would have been in the anti-communist, let's do whatever it takes to restore order kind of coalition. So I think she is a threat in those terms because of the kind of coalition that she can bring together to support an authoritarian regime. Now, we don't really know why Pedro Castillo attempted a self-coup. I mean, I don't think it's been explained. Nobody understands it. The motive isn't even clear. But it seems like one of the reasons was that Keiko and her coalition in Congress was attempting to impeach him. And they had made several failed attempts. And this isn't just going through the motions. They've impeached multiple presidents in the last administration. So they've accomplished this multiple times. And so they were trying to impeach him. So there's a sense that he attempted a self-coup to dissolve Congress before they gained the support to actually find an excuse to impeach him that would gain enough support to actually get across the threshold. Why does Keiko have so much support in Congress to be able to impeach so many different presidents? Point of clarification. So her party had lots of support in the 2016 Congress, but the fact that the rest of the parties had such a small percentage of votes for Congress enlarged her minority, let's say, to something that was disproportionately large given the kind of votes she had had. Her party was the most voted, but it was far from a majority. The electoral system pushed her over this large supermajority. And that majority in coalition with leftist parties was the one that forced the resignation of Pedro Pablo Kuczynski in 2018. He was about to be removed by Congress, so he resigned. After that, came Vizcarra, who ended up dissolving Congress uh, using the Constitution, but in a very debatable way. He dissolved Congress, and after that, Fujimorismo came back in 2020 and then in 2021, because there were two elections in those two years, but it was not even close to the kind of majority that it had in 2016. However, this cycle of removing presidents continued 
So coalitions of small parties would just form to remove presidents. And the same was happening with Castillo. Castillo was not facing a single party opposition majority in Congress. It was a collection of different parties. And he was facing actually his own party, which I said already, he had no real organic connections to it. Kind of like not saying he was not going to vote against. So it was like a veiled threat to Castillo. And indeed, that was in part why I think he launched this coup. He felt they were going to remove him. There was precedent, of course. So it was not an absurd or ridiculous assumption. So he moved forward. He kind of like did it before they did it to him. But again, no power to do it, really, to launch a coup. I mean, now he's facing prison. Before, he was just facing removal from Congress. It's very hard to understand the rationality behind the coup. I might be jumping ahead, but just from a bird's eye view, this comes across as a classic case of institutional weakness, where it's common to think of institutional weakness in terms of constitutions, where you create a constitution and then the next people come into power and they're upset with something, so they completely replace the constitution, and then the next group completely replaces that constitution. So you have what becomes serial replacement. Sounds like in Peru, the same thing's happening with the presidency, where president comes into power, but he's so weak that you replace that president. And then that president comes into power, but they're so weak to get anything done so that you replace the next president and you replace the next president. And Peru, we haven't gone through the list, but there's been five presidents in what, five-year period? It's something just unfathomable for people in the West to really comprehend. Yeah. Since 2016, I think there have been like six presidents. Kuczynski, Vizcarra, Merino, Sagasti, Castillo, Boluarte. Six since 2016. And Vizcarra was actually fairly popular at the time. So they've replaced presidents, whether they're popular or unpopular, they've still removed them from power. Yeah, he was widely popular. He was also a very weak president. He had no party. He had no supporting Congress whatsoever. He was, to some extent, to a large extent, an outsider to power too, practically unknown in the circles of power. So we have a new president now, Dina Uluarte, and you describe her as being embraced by the political right, by being embraced by the Fujimoristas. Can you explain who she is and why they have embraced her? So Dina Boluarte fits the character for a Peruvian president. She's someone who would have not dreamed of becoming president two years ago. Her only experience, again, running for mayor in the district of Lima and failing. No other political experience at all. She was a low-level bureaucrat in Peruvian state and... Uh, yeah, she was pretty obscure. And interestingly, once Castillo won the presidency, she was on leave on her position. The media asked her, like, why don't you resign? And she said, the country as it is, I'd rather not because, you know, I could be out of the vice presidency tomorrow. So she was well aware of the fragility of her power once she became vice president. In any case, she was a minister in Castillo's cabinet and... Um, didn't call much attention, media attention. And uh, eventually, when a coalition starts to muster enough people in power and so on to remove Castillo, it became clear that they preferred Boluarte in power rather than Castillo, of course. 
Once Boluarte was in power, and this part, like it is unclear how much she had talked to these other parties. Probably she had. We don't know yet. But as soon as she took oath, she basically said she would end Castillo's presidential term. So she would govern the country until 2026, which was something that was not foreseen and was widely unpopular. But it was a position that was strongly supported by Congress because they knew they could not remove her and finish their term until 2026. They would have to call for early elections. So the solution to be in power in Congress until 2026 was to have someone like Boluarte finish her presidential term. And she said she would do it. So at that moment, a pact was created between Congress, which was dominated by right-wing parties, and Boluarte. A pact for survival in power. A pact between widely unpopular figures, but who had each other's hand to make it to 2026. And that pact is what triggered protests throughout the country. For sure, there was a section of the country that was mobilizing because they wanted Castillo back or because they wanted a new constitution and so on. But the vast majority was a mobilization in reaction to what they saw, I think, as a power grab, a rejection of this power grab. So the protests are not so much for Castillo as they are against the current president. I think so, yes. And her reaction to protests solidified her alliance with Congress because she embraced the narrative of protests being the result of communist conspirators who wanted to depose her and bring chaos to the country and so on and so forth. The very things that the opposition to Castillo said he was an agent of, including her, but now she was somewhat an agent against those forces. So using that rhetoric, resting on the military and the police to repress the protest, this naturally kind of like brought her in the vicinity of right-wing parties and offered her a more solid base of supporting Congress. Of course, it's not that Congress supports her. It supports repression and keeping things as they are until 2026. So even that support is not as strong as some people suggest. It's a marriage of convenience. Well, coalitions in Peru seem to always be fragile. Yes. And I'm going to be honest, when the protests first broke out, I was really caught off guard because the autogolpe that Castillo attempted did really shock me. I mean, it caught me by surprise. It caught most people by surprise, I think. But as I talked to different Latin American scholars, I think mostly offline, one of the themes that I heard was that Castillo was just a very uncharismatic leader. Like he didn't fit that Chavez populist mold of somebody who just instilled an immense amount of support, an immense amount of people that were going to go to the streets for you. And so when the protest broke out, I was really surprised because I was expecting people not to care as much because there has been so much political instability. In many ways, him being arrested was almost a sense of political stability. It was a sense that, hey, we are going to abide by certain laws and certain rules. We're sticking by a certain sense of order. And there was a real potential to be able to move on from that moment. But it definitely did not play out that way at all. 
Can you talk a little bit about the type of people that are on the street protesting? Because it's unusual because most of the time when I hear about protests in places, it's usually in the urban centers. And it seems like in Peru, it's actually happening in the countryside. So you're right that Castillo did not fit the mold of the charismatic figure who could just, you know, mobilize the street with his personality. However, populism is always about vindicating part of the country that represents the true core of the country and that is usually being victimized by some evil establishment. That populist narrative changes, but has that at its core everywhere. And Castillo had that rhetoric, like others. But this time, Castillo was not only the carrier of that narrative, he was also like him personally, with a perfect representation of the person that came from that area of the country, where the true national identity lies, where the victimized people resides. So there was a very strong sense of identification with Castillo. Regardless of what he did, it was more about who he was. And the sector who was supporting him, regardless of what he had done, it's difficult to pinpoint exactly, but I think was around 25% of the country. So the people that protested, that went to the streets, certainly that 25%, but also, as I was saying, the people that were just against the power grab. However, something that you said before is very good. Like this sector that was really identified with Castillo, with who he was, really was willing and prepared to be mobilized in a more populist fashion. Castillo was incapable of doing it. But when he was removed from the presidency, he was a more effective mobilizer because of the symbol. You just took one of us from power. So if he had been a more effective populist, there could have been potential for a very robust mobilization of one sector of the country, particularly the South and Highlands. Something that caught me off guard too about the political analysis of all of this is that in Peru, it sounds like the leftists are in the countryside and those who identify with the political right are actually in the urban centers. Because in the United States and Europe, the urban centers are typically the areas that are more leftist. And it's the countryside that is shifting to the political right, the more conservative areas of the country. In Peru, it sounds flipped. And I've heard that it's true in Brazil. It's similar in some other parts of Latin America. Why is that in Peru in particular? Well, I think the difference has to do with the post-materialistic kind of agenda that the left has in the North. And in the South, the left has a more traditional working class and peasant-based kind of constituency. Let's say in the North, the dividing cleavage is education. In Latin America, it's still mostly class for the most part. The middle class that is the core constituency of some of the leftist parties in the North are too small in the South, including Peru. Some of that middle class, more liberal kind of left exists in Peru, but it's not enough to win an election. So the natural constituency for the left in Peru and other countries explains, I think, this difference. In the case of Peru, the highlands and the south are the most impoverished, the most indigenous, 
the most rural parts of the country. And hence, those parts of the country have always voted against the capital, against the coast, against the most integrated parts of the country to the world. Sometimes, I'm not sure if left is the way to say it, but for sure is anti-establishment, anti-Lima, anti-whatever political project Lima is pushing for. And that project has been for a good while right from center. So that's why that part of the country has always been looking for a left from center, anti-establishment outsider to represent them. It was Fujimori, actually, in the 90s, the first time. Fujimori was the first one to represent that sector of the country in this fashion. Then it was Toledo, then Umala, and now Castillo. So we've kind of had a theme running through our conversation that we've kind of been dancing around, which is this idea of extreme fragmentation within Peru with this sense that political power is just not concentrated enough to be able to be effective. And normally we're concerned about power concentration. I mean, the idea of tyranny is this overpowering state, but you've actually described Peru as a crisis of power dilution. And I think that we've talked enough about what's happened that you can explain to us the big picture, why you see this as a crisis of power dilution at this point. So Alberto Vergara and I'm a co-author we had been thinking about what the democratic illness of Peru was. This was a little after, or even sooner, even before maybe Castillo won the election. We were in conversations and we were unsatisfied with the available concepts out there to represent what was happening in Peru. And uh, it quickly became apparent that the problem was that the literature was too focused on power concentration, which is understandable because the field of democratic studies, democratization studies, emerges thinking of how to break down the power of oligarchies, how to break down the power of military dictatorships, how to prevent executive aggrandizement, and so on and so forth. From the classics to more contemporary literature, it's always been power concentration and pluralism as the opposite of power concentration. But what we had in Peru was clearly not a concentration of power, but it was not what democratic theory has in mind when it says pluralism. You think of different actors, forces that have some level of power and that balance each other out, but that power that they have comes from the fact that they represent a sector of society. And it is that balance between different sectors of society that are being represented, what brings democracy about and makes it workable and makes agreements possible. But Peru did not have that. So when Castillo tried to launch the coup and then Peru made it to the headlines because of the repression that followed and people started to wonder, is this the rise of a new authoritarianism? Or is this an oligarchic reaction after the presidency of a peasant? We said, you know what? We should just write this idea that we have had for a while about what's happening in Peru, about power dilution and what we call democratic hollowing, the hollowing of democracy by the dilution of its representative power. Yeah, I think that this idea of hollowing is interesting because it's 
distinguished from democratic backsliding. You're not saying that democracy is backsliding per se. You're saying that the state is being hollowed out. And so democracy doesn't really exist at all. Yeah. Like when we started thinking about this, we were clear that democratic hollowing was making democracy ungovernable. It was bringing about all this instability. And it was also making politicians so short-sighted, like their time horizon was so short that they were more prone to power grabs, short-term gains, strategies, and so on, that we thought it merited discussion. But we discussed at the time, only theoretically, this environment could also be not necessarily the catalyst for an authoritarian regime, but for the use of repression and the use of non-democratic tools to fill that vacuum of power left by the crumbling of representative institutions. And that's when this happened, when this kind of repression happened. So democratic Halloween certainly has this effect of making democracy ungovernable by shortening time horizons, but also pushes or introduces the threat that non-democratic means of governing resorting to repression, resorting to de facto powers, is a tempting option, precisely because you don't have the power, the democratic power, to govern the country. Like, why is Dina Boluarte repressing protests in the country? She had no capacity to find, let's say, political solutions. Political solutions require someone sitting on a table with someone else, and those someones supposedly represent parts of the country, and they reach an agreement and they pacify the country. But in Peru, those people do not exist. Nobody can speak in the name of anybody. It reminds me of the differences between state capacity and institutional weakness. Because in Peru, there's clearly state capacity because they have the capacity to repress. They have the capacity to crack down on protesters. But what they don't have are the institutions necessary to make political solutions possible. They don't have strong political parties capable of bringing people together, bringing interests together to be able to make compromises. They don't have strong institutions like presidency capable of withstanding conflicts with other branches. They have such weak institutions, yet at the same time, state capacity isn't necessarily disappearing because those institutions are weak. The state capacity exists, so there's possibility of authoritarianism without any semblance, without any rational form of regime in existence. Yeah, like, you know, Peru is not a country with a very high state capacity, but it has enough state capacity to kind of muster enough force to use this kind of repression. As you say, the problem is it doesn't have the other representative institutions to make democracy work. So in our article, you know, we talk about what democratic hollowing is for us, which is the fragmentation and the circulation of power, the political arena being populated by outsiders, and the disappearance of linkages between state and society. And the consequences are, as I was saying, twofold. On the one hand, you have this short time horizon for politicians. They know they have no tomorrow, so they have no incentive for cooperation. They just have incentives for power grabs. This is why they would just use the nuclear powers of the constitution to just attack the president 
or the president to attack Congress and so on. You know, they have no incentives to not be disloyal towards the opposition. But then there's also this power vacuum filled with de facto powers. And if you look at the recent history in Peru, you see that the military are back in the picture more and more. Not directly, they're not governing. But the fact that they don't concentrate power doesn't mean that they won't be used as a source of legitimacy or as a source of force, simple brutal force. Vizcarra had to take a picture with generals in the context where Congress was claiming that he was no longer legitimate president. And he took this picture of himself with generals and posted it on social media, kind of to say, you know, I'm the one who has power. So game over. Then Vizcarra's successor, Merino, was reportedly calling the military before taking on power, seeing if they could, you know, support him or not. When Castillo won the election, many people in the country were like calling for the military to step in, to intervene, to stop this communist takeover or whatever. And once he launched the failed coup, the military had again to say publicly that they were not going to do this and they were going to stick to the constitution. But, you know, we're having to look at the military constantly more and more to adjudicate between these weak actors. So the essay is fascinating because you emphasize the fact that there are no legitimate political parties in Peru and there are no legitimate professional politicians. Makes it difficult for the country to be able to operate. At this point, we're not even looking for parties. We're looking for leaders, right? But there's nothing like that either. So, yes. Yeah. So is there any sense that there is a possibility to be able to move forward and make things better? Like, does Peru simply need a new constitution? What, in your mind, is the roadmap to be able to get back to democracy and functional government once again? Wow, that's too tough a question. But let's think of what's happened in other countries. So in other countries in Latin America, where there have been crises of representation and power started to dilute, in some cases, not in all of them, these authoritarian figures emerged. Correa in Ecuador, Chavez in Venezuela. But these figures are highly polarizing. And in some countries, that has led to some sort of resetting of the political system, resetting around this new political party or this new political force. It happened in Bolivia. The mass is the new center of the political system after the parties from the 80s and 90s decomposed. It has happened to some extent, I think, in Venezuela. I mean, it's hard to tell because it's an authoritarian regime, but my thinking is that if Maduro would step down tomorrow because of whatever miracle and the PSUV would run again for the presidency, close to a third of the country would vote for the Chavista successor. So again, Venezuela is also kind of structured around this new party. Not in the case of Ecuador, though. Ecuador is closer to what Ecuador was before Correa than to the time in which Correa was in power. So this crisis sometimes are solved through a massive process of polarization, where people actually have to take sides and leave aside their minuscule agendas and small identities and just embrace this larger identity against this other group of people. 
It's a messy process. It's a violent process. It's a polarizing process. But it is how these countries solved it. Arguably, the power was not as diluted as it is in Peru. But it's the only thing I can think of. Let's say the, the route of polarization. And if you think of the more simple things that you, one can do, there are certain institutions, laws that are like really harmful. Some of them are preventing politicians from running for re-election at every level. And, you know, you cannot recompose a political system based on electoral laws and electoral reforms, but you can at least remove blockages to that. And I think one thing you need to do is you need to grant parties and people the possibility of re-election such that you can accumulate some power. We are in a crisis of dilution, so we need some power accumulation minimum level so that the game can become predictable once more and that people have the incentive not to be disloyal to adversaries. So, Rodrigo, we've been talking about Peru as a country that's in a crisis and that's very different from the rest of the world, that's experiencing something that is uncommon. But as you're writing your essay, I felt like there were parts of the problems, the crisis in Peru that I could relate to in the United States and that I could see in other countries as well. Do you feel that the Peruvian crisis is truly an exception? Or do you think that it's more typical than most people would realize? I think Peru is an extreme case of something that I think will become more common. What you say is true. Establishments are in crisis everywhere. People reject establishments everywhere, and establishments are losing capacity to organize political game everywhere. Think of, I don't know, France. Like, you know, when you have Macron, who is not precisely an insider, but also the level of rejection that you see for the establishment in some sectors of the population and voters in the U.S., people that are willing to vote for a populist, left or right. But the reason why Peru is a more extreme case is because Peru's political system was always weak. It was always weak. And in that sense, Peru is a canary in the mine. So it's an early alarm. It's a country that will fall first to this kind of threat. And in Latin America, most countries are very far from becoming Peru. But let's say the gravitational force is pulling them toward Peru. There is some level of Peruvianization of some countries in Latin America. And you can see that when you think of the three dimensions that I mentioned about fragmentation and circulation of power, about the emergence of outsiders and they're taking over the political arena and the breakage of linkages between politics and society. And you see countries like Colombia, Ecuador, Chile, and you just can't help to see features of this. In Chile, you see headlines and see the news, and sometimes you feel like Chile is Peru's past. They're discussing now the kinds of problems that Peru has had, but that Chile was not even close 10 years ago. The kind of party fragmentation, the incapacity to deal with social conflict, congressmen switching parties once they are elected, those kind of things now are common in Chile, and they were not, not long ago. In Colombia, the fragmentation of people's vote 
was only moderated by the establishment's coordination and attempt to remove many candidates such that people would concentrate votes in a bunch of them. And even with those efforts by the establishment, people ended up putting Rodolfo Hernandez, a complete outsider. He was not as outsider as outsider are in Peru, but he was completely non-establishment. Nevertheless, he made it to the runoff. And Ecuador, they're about to remove his president. And the dynamic in Congress is pretty similar to the one in Peru. So I think Democratic Halloween is not going to be the threat to democracy in Latin America. And power concentration will continue to be an important threat. And you just have to look at Nicaragua, El Salvador, Venezuela. But along with those, you will have Democratic Halloween. Well, it's it's an interesting concept. It's definitely something that people will be thinking about and just really challenging how we think about democracy and how we think about threats to democracy, not just in Latin America, but even beyond. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for writing your article. Let me mention it one more time. It's Peru, the danger of powerless democracy. Thank you so much for writing it. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you for the invitation. It was a pleasure.